0: Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best Of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now, let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are joined by Dr. Michael Hamblin, who is an expert in this area and he has quite a prestigious background of credentials as a researcher. He's an associate professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School. And he's also a principal investigator at the Wellman Center for Photo Medicine at Massachusetts General Health Hospital and a member of the uh, Harvard-MIT Division of Health Science and Technology. So he's really got an enormous amount of expertise in this area, and we are honored and uh, really privileged to have him uh, with us today. So thank you for joining us, and Dr. Hamblin.
1: Um. Very pleased to be uh, joining you, Dr. McCullough. Um, Do you want me to just plow right in or would you like to ask some questions?
0: Well, I have a, I have a load of questions because I'm absolutely beyond fascinated with this topic because I think the implications are just extraordinary uh, with respect to what it can do for our health and relatively inexpensive and certainly almost always non-toxic. So those are high on my list of great great uh, uh, characteristics of strategies i like to recommend so why don't you start and then I'll interject my questions as we as you go along okay
1: so you started off introducing a concept you called infrared therapy and that is part of a thing that we call photobiomodulation so photobiomodulation now includes light of all wavelengths visible light right from the blue through the green through the red and into the infrared, and possibly the most commonly used wavelengths of light are what we call the near-infrared. So that starts about 750 nanometers and goes all the way into maybe 1200 nanometers. That's the near-infrared, which has a lot of biological effects, and it also penetrates well into the body, because other colors of light, like blue and green, have a lot of biological effects but they don't penetrate too well. So ideally we want to have highly active wavelengths of light that penetrate well into the body. Now there is another kind of infrared radiation usually called far infrared which again has biological effects and that's the kind of infrared you get from an infrared heat lamp or an infrared sauna. Um, A lot of people like Infrared saunas, they, they have a lot of health benefits. They're sort of vaguely similar to photobiomodulation, but you know, there are differences. Um you know, so the
0: well, well let's let's stop stop here for a moment just to clear up some of the distinctions, because my understanding of heat lamps is that they are indeed mostly far infrared, but they're ten uh, percent of the energy is near infrared. It could so, be, yep. Yeah. yeah. So they do have uh, important biological impacts also, and I, and, and uh, with respect to the penetration, it's my understanding that those higher wavelengths beyond 900 to 1,000 nanometers tend not to penetrate well. Uh, they do penetrate, but the problem is, is that the water, which is a magnificent chromophore, absorbs them before they get to the tissues. So can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you're quite right that after a certain wavelength, the principal biological chromophore is water. Um, It's quite clear that far-infrared is absorbed by water, some near-infrared wavelengths are better absorbed by water. So you may ask how, if the Energy is just absorbed by plain old water. How can it do anything of great <laughs> biological
0: consequence? The, Good question.
1: And the answer is that there's this concept called nanostructured water. And this has been principally discussed by physicists and material scientists, but it turns out that nanostructured water. Is present on hydrophobic surfaces like certain kinds of cell membranes, and it could be inside the cell in various organelles. So, if you absorb, so, a it, very-
0: so excuse me for interrupting, but this would be inside the mitochondria too, and it would also be in the extracellular space in the plasma membrane, the
1: mitochondrial membrane, and the ER membrane. Virtually all membranes, in principle, can have nanostructured water. And some people say the mitochondria are basically full of nanostructured water. (laughs) I've heard that. (laughs) So the the idea is that a small amount of vibrational energy in the water molecules can perturb tertiary protein structure, which is particularly important for things like iron channels. And as you know, iron channels have a huge number of biological pathways. So there's no real bulk heating when you use far infrared, you know, the sort of levels that get into the tissue, right? It may heat up the skin a bit, but at depth, it can have biological effects by altering protein structure mediated by nanostructured water without being able to measure any bulk temperature change.
0: Okay, and and this mechanism of action differs from the near-infrared, which seems to focus on the cytochrome C oxidase in the mitochondria primarily, uh, improving or increasing the production of ATP, but also releasing nitric oxide, which has important signaling effect. So it would be great if you could expand on that.
1: Okay, I mean, you're absolutely right that the accepted mechanism in the mitochondria involves dissociation of nitric oxide from cytochrome C oxidase, increasing electron transport and ATP synthesis. Now, people measure nitric oxide release. It's not clear that all the nitric oxide comes from dissociation of cytochrome C oxidase. And the reason for that is, I actually just mentioned a little while ago, ion channels. Mm -hmm. Turns out that a lot of these what we call transient receptor potential ion channels will activate various kinds of nitric oxide synthase or nitrite reductase, so there are several recognized pathways to nitric oxide other than dissociation from you know, heme and copper centers and cytochrome C oxidase. And interestingly, the kind of light that produces these other nitric oxide pathways tends to be either blue or green, or they're quite long wavelengths near infrared. That's what we found in our lab. So, red and, you know, short near infrared. Produce nitric oxide probably by a different pathway from blue, green, and long near infrared. That's that's our present understanding of this. Um, Mm. So, is there any
0: any any speculation of what those pathways might be? Because I haven't read about that in the literature.
1: Well, as I say, these nitric oxide synthase and nitrite reductase have been shown to be activated by ion channels by TRP ions. Yeah. All right. Somebody else also showed that cytochrome C oxidase could be a light dependent nitrite reductase, which is different from dissociating nitric oxide. So there's a lot for us to learn about the mechanisms, you know, I think we're making substantial progress in teasing apart these mechanisms. Um, keeps folks like me Busy in the lab, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, by and large, the, the thing to remember about photobiomodulation is it's highly biphasic in dose. So many people have got themselves into trouble by giving too much light.
0: Uh, I, def- right. I definitely wanted to touch on that. So please expand because <laughs> this is a massively important concept. It's the Goldilocks dose. There's this, there's this narrow range where it's going to give you benefit. And if below or above, below that, not much benefit. And above, you can actually cause harm.
1: Well, that's, that's the idea, yes. I mean, it's not a narrow range, actually. It, it's quite a wide range. So, you know, obviously, there's a power density, what we call milliwatts per square centimeter, there is a level where nothing will happen. You can sit in this light 24 hours a day, it'll have no effect. Right? But that's very low levels of light. So then you raise the dose and you get biological effects. And if you keep raising it, these effects will diminish. And it's possible that if you give a huge amount of light, you could actually damage the tissue and people have even proposed you could treat cancer, for instance, by giving huge amounts of light. Not the most efficient way, but people have proposed it. But by and large, somewhere between 10 and 20-fold positive window, right? So you could give 2 milliwatts per square centimeter, and that would be fine. You could give 40 milliwatts per square centimeter, that would probably also be fine. The best thing is somewhere in the middle. but you know, it's it's not like balanced on a knife edge, right? You know, just sure. oh,
0: I so do you th- uh, the ideal dose is about ten milliwatts per square centimeter?
1: Well that's a power density. The dose is usually calculated in joules per square centimeter. Okay. So you know, if you have ten milliwatts per square centimeter, that is one joule every hundred seconds, which is one and one and uh, two thirds minutes. So um yeah, you know, um, so, if you want 10 joules, 10 joules is a reasonable sort of dose. Um, if you're treating things deeper in the body, you may want more than 10 joules per square centimeter. you may want 20 or 30, a hundred is probably too much and it also it <laughs> takes a long time, you've got to have a very powerful light source. Um, So, another thing to remember that confuses people a lot is a lot of people have lasers, and the lasers have little spots, right? little focus Uh spots. And they say, okay, I've got a 10 milliwatt laser, but my spot area is only a square millimetre. So, my power density from a 10 milliwatt laser is one watt per square centimetre. And in my opinion, this is complete nonsense. If you have a 10 milliwatt laser, the most power you can deliver is 10 milliwatts. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it doesn't matter too much what the size of the spot is because the photons start to scatter as soon as they go into the tissue and the spot gets big, gets huge. So having a tiny little focus spot from a, a low power laser, in my opinion, just confuses people.
0: Yeah, and and just for clarification, the laser is coherent light, it and is. and most of your re—I mean, most of the original research was done with lasers, Absolutely. and but there's there's massive trend in the research now, and your great example of that is towards using LEDs, which are more cost-effective, and uh, seems to be more an effective and efficient way to provide the therapy. I completely
1: agree that the the only convincing case where you really want to laser is if you want to get the light into an optical fiber because you want to put it inside the body. So if you want to have a, an endoscope or you know put the light in the lungs or the stomach or bladder, people do this occasionally but and you pretty much need a laser to focus the light into an optical fiber. It's kind of difficult to do it with LEDs.
0: Sure. But, well well, yeah. th- well that's for that's for diagnostic purposes, it's certainly not for therapy.
1: Well, people do it with the Russians used to do all really? therapy with internal optical fibers in the heart oh, it- and the blood vessels. Um it's not so common in the west i have to
0: say okay. i hadn't heard of it before but certainly yep. for di- for diagnostics with endoscopes yep. and such as yeah
1: cool. yeah absolutely absolutely so the one trend in this field with leds to have flexible led arrays that are wearable right so mm-hmm. these are like things you can wrap around your joints or a, a hat you can put on your head or something you can put on your back for lower back pain and I think a lot of companies are coming out with these flexible LED um, sort of wearable devices. I think it's a, it's a big growth field.
0: Well, the, just for clarification, the LED isn't flexible, but the frame that it's attached right. to yeah, is absolutely. so that it can mold absolutely. to the contours yeah. of your body. And, and,
1: and Well, I mean, to, just to point out that now they have organic LEDs, OLEDs, where the actual light-emitting substance is flexible. But wow, they're, okay. They're just, they're I, just coming in.
0: Yes, yeah, c- certainly it's available for TVs and for many of our phones and devices, uh, but I wasn't aware that they actually had them therapeutically. That well,
1: people, are, people are kind of studying it. I, I don't think you can buy one yet, but there are a few <laughs> few folks trying to do it.
0: And they have them in the infrared OLEDs?
1: Yeah, I believe that
0: they're all
1: common in the red. It's wow. trickier to make them in the near
0: infrared. Okay, great. So uh, thank you for that fundamental primer on the photobiomodulation. And yeah, I, I just want to give a little uh, basic intro to the next section, which is that the, it, it wasn't really stated, but I want to make it clear that most of us eat, we eat food for fuel, and this fuel is converted to basically fats and, and glucose, and it and it really generates ATP. But a big section of that ATP generation that you alluded to is this really uh, exposure to the near-infrared, which which powers the mitochondria to produce additional ATP. So it's both. And if you're only existing in a cave without any near infrared light exposure, you're really depriving yourself of a very valuable food source. So why don't we expand on that a bit and then we'll talk about the different available ways that one can nourish your body with that type of
1: exposure. I mean, I I, I would sort of say that you can't say that light is a food, right? What light does is it allows you to use your food much more efficiently. you couldn't live on light for instance. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the light does help the cells make the best use of the food they've got. And you know, the better production of energy and, you know, for instance, in, since in, in the western world people are getting obese and nobody exercises, light does seem to combine very well with modest amounts of exercise. So, you know, you can lose weight, your muscles perform way better and it has a huge amount of health benefits, things like diabetes and blood lipids and even psychological health is benefited by exercise combined with light.
0: Yeah, and the sad reality for most of us who exercise is that we are doing it in environments where we're exposed to Uh, blue light, artificial blue light, primarily through LEDs and, you know, cool white LEDs and fluorescent lamps that have very little red and near infrared, virtually no in near infrared. So that that is a definite problem. That's not going to nourish your health. So ideally, you want to exercise outside in full sunlight. So maybe you can comment on that.
1: Well, I mean, you know, blue light is good in the morning. I mean, that's quite clear that exposing yourself to blue, bright light in the morning balances a lot of brain
0: um, circuits... I agree with that, but it, if it just has blue light exclusively, where you're creating this ROS specifically in the in the retina to help the optimized production of melatonin, and you don't balance that damage with the near infrared regenerative restore mechanism, then you have problems. And that's the pro- that's what I was referring to. This artificial exposure to LED light and fluorescent that doesn't have the red in the near infrared.
1: I I think it's highly dependent on the time of day, so red near and red light at night produces melatonin, helps you sleep, blue bright light in the morning kind of, you know, balances your brain circuits, it's antidepressant, it kind of gives you more alertness, but you know, as with anything, doze is key, you can probably more easily overdose yourself with blue light than probably any other wavelength. So I think you have to be careful with blue light because you can probably overdo it.
0: Excellent. So the it would appear just superficially that the ideal way to receive most of this exposure, and certainly the least expensive for most of us, would be just simply to go outside and expose as much of your skin as possible. Obviously impractical for most people in the winter unless you live in the subtropics. So, But certainly for the summer, that's possible. So. I'm wondering if you could help us understand the comparative therapy benefits or therapeutic benefits from uh, a sunlight exposure versus some of these devices that generate the red and the near-infrared. Because yeah. it, well, it, it, it has to do with the energy density, and it's something I don't quite understand yet. So I'm hoping you can help us, yeah. help at least me, clear up the confusion. I suspect many others would too. So
1: about you know, 80, 90 years ago in Europe, there was a big thing about heliotherapy clinics. So patients who had all sorts of chronic conditions would go to clinics in the Alps where they would expose themselves to sunlight. So Oscar Bernhardt was one of the German guys that started this whole thing. And he once said, that you need to be in the mountains. He said, if you just go and lie in the sun on the beach, all you're getting is a sun bath. But if you go up in the mountains, you're actually getting a medical therapy. So the key question is, why is sunlight so much better up in the mountains? And, you know, one theory, well, it's got a lot more ultraviolet if you go up high, but it's, that's Probably not the reason, in in my opinion, because ultraviolet will give you sunburn if you get too much of it, so I Mm -hmm. don't think it's the ultraviolet. I think that in high altitudes, there's much less oxygen in the atmosphere and the mitochondria are working at a different kind of cycle, right? Oxidative phosphorylation is more skewed towards glycolysis because the oxygen Availability is less at high altitudes, so that's just my pet theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, people used to get complete chronic wounds healed by going to these heliotherapy clinics, just the same as you would do at sea level with a near-infrared LED array. Um, I think people like sunlight. You know, everybody likes sunlight, and provided you. Uh, you take precautions against getting too much ultraviolet i think sunlight's fine um, but you know we have, we have busy lives and since you can get a therapeutic dose of near infrared from an led array and maybe 10 minutes a day i think that's probably the way to go
0: okay so but yeah, are you suggesting that they you can receive equivalent benefits from either? So if you have the opportunity, to expose yourself outside, uh, you know, either in the subtropics in the winter or, as you mentioned, at altitude. Because I've got friends who live at Park City, which is like seven, eight thousand feet. And uh, even in February, they are actually getting enough ultraviolet B radiation, so they could actually, you know, when it's warm, because when, when it's sunny out in the afternoon, uh, they can expose their sons and s- their, their skin and actually get significant levels of vitamin D even in February, well, which is oh,
1: well, I, mean, uh, I mean, the vitamin D is, is obviously another great plus about about sunlight. Um, uh, you know, again, you you can get too much UV, but everybody oh, sure, needs sure. enough UV to get a, a quota of vitamin D. Um, I just thought it was interesting this this thing from 80 years ago about the altitude, because I don't think anybody ever tweaked this. Um, another interesting thing that I thought once is that throughout human history, people have liked to sit around fires. for Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of years from cavemen, every Mm -hmm. evening people would sit around a fire and expose themselves to infrared, and a lot of it far infrared, you know, the sort of thing you get from glowing embers. And it's only in the last 30 years that people have stopped sitting around fires regularly. Everybody has central heating now, Mm -hmm. so you could say that Western civilization is suffering from a deficit of far infrared light
0: yes indeed yes indeed and as you mentioned for that time frame that was really the only light exposure we had at night for them yep. and it was was it was literally uh, some type of fire whether it was a lamp or a, a, a regular wood fire or a stove uh that was that was it or a candle um that was it. So it's only in the last hundred and fifty <laughs> years or so or twenty twenty-five that we've had these artificial lights. And yep. fortunately the first ones, the incandescents, were relatively close to those fires. Uh, uh-huh. The, yep. They they had a little more blue, of course, uh, but yeah. not much more. And if you look at the spectrum, it's it's a pretty close to a candle.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh...
0: but but that's not the case now. We've <laughs> We progressed to the L, for the fluorescence and then the LEDs, which are ma- yeah. massively more energy efficient, but biologically not as healthy.
1: I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people think that regular fluorescent lights, like most of us have in our offices, are probably bad for you by and large. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly not good for you, possibly slightly bad. Um, I think the thing about LEDs is that you put them generally, you put them right next to your skin, and for a relatively um brief period, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, that sort of period, and you can feel the benefit. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but um, there's a whole body light bed. Um, James Carroll mm-hmm. Thor makes this called the Novo Thor. and It's an amazing thing. It's 500 watts of LED power and okay. you can climb in it for like 10 minutes and you can feel the difference. I mean, you really can. It's kind of expensive, so not many people have one at home. But what's, uh, the,
0: what's the price range on something like that?
1: Over a hundred thousand dollars.
0: That is pr- quite expensive. Yeah. So, <laughs> what type of LEDs do they have in there? Is it the, certainly the red big, and near infrared? Near,
1: it, yeah, it's six sixty eight fifty, I think.
0: That's it. That's the only two.
1: Only two. Yeah.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: that's probably equal, maybe a bit more of the near infrared. A lot of people put. One part of red and two parts of near infrared.
0: Well, let me ask you a sort of a tweaking question uh, because it seems we never really addressed the frequency or the wavelength that optimize um, the optimized wavelength for stimulating cytochrome c oxidase. Uh, there seems to be a range of about 810 to 830, and you just mentioned 850. What would your guess be for the – and your studies show that that is the ideal target? Because these – the, the, and when you answer that, we'll talk, we'll talk about some other components, too, yeah. because I think the, that, that is a very narrow focus stream, and I want to compare that to the yeah. analog meth, uh, exposure that you get from a, uh, something like sunlight.
1: So, you know, we've done a lot of studies over the years, um, and we cannot really detect a difference between red light like 660 and near infrared, let us say 810, 830, 850. So, first of all, all the 800s seem to be the same. And also, as far as we can tell, something in the mid 600s like 660 is the same as the near infrared. Now, I think a few other Folks have claimed to find some differences, but there's not much difference.
0: Really, really so the the, the red at six sixty will still provide the same mitochondrial benefits. Yep, absolutely. I did not know that. Uh huh. That is interesting. I didn't. Re- 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 I thought they were completely different, but it makes no, sense because they're pretty close. I mean, they're not that far apart.
1: No, but in between, seven thirty does virtually nothing. Interesting. Uh, why do you think? Why do you think that is? Well, the theory is the absorption spectrum of cytochrome C oxidase has two peaks, one in the mid-600s and one about 800. Okay. And Tina Carew published that and the Wisconsin folks published that. Several folks have have done that.
0: Okay. Well, well, let's transition into the difference between the uh, focused digital spectrum of a LED light source and an analog like an incandescent or the Sun so which has the complete wavelengths and you will just alluded to the fact that there's these these bands or gaps that there doesn't appear to be any any biological benefit although I'm inclined to sus- or concerned that that may be the same approach that we looked at at junk DNA previously which we now <laughs> know is not <laughs> junk DNA that nope. actually has some benefit we just don't understand it at this point so maybe you yeah. can explain Expand on, on the, at least what the current thought on this concept is.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, some wavelengths seem to be very good for relieving pain. So, blue light, particularly, and you probably know that Philips is selling a, a blue LED patch called the Blue Touch for lower back pain. Um, other folks are starting to use blue light for painful conditions. Um people say red light is good for relieving inflammation. So, you know, inflammatory conditions. And um, yeah, I think near infrared is good for regenerating things, possibly because things that need regenerating are usually deeper, you know, tendons and bones and these cartilage. Things that need regenerating are usually deeper inside. And it's quite clear that near-infrared penetrates better. I think everybody agrees on that. Um, Obviously, one of the big growth areas is the brain. And this again, this is really intriguing because folks find benefits in the brain by putting all sorts of light on the head. High-power near-infrared lasers and high-power LEDs, but relatively low-power devices that can go up the nose, they can go in the ears, they can go different parts of the head, and everybody thinks, well, the photons have got to get in the brain, so there's got to be a certain power density, but it's not clear. I mean, the photons can be absorbed in the blood, you have blood circulating in your scalp, you have bone marrow in the bone of your skull, and it's known that light is very good at activating stem cells in bone marrow. That's one of the big deals. Uh, so you know uh, clearly that photobiomodulation has huge effects on the brain. Still, the jury's out. What is the best way to get the light in your head? <laughs>
0: Well, you're actually involved in a number of studies to answer that question. Uh, I know you've done some, published some work with Dr. Lim, Lou Lim. Lou Lim, Uh, yep. Especially with respect to treating neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So maybe you could summarize what you've learned to date.
1: Yep. So you know, there's only been a few studies so far about photobiomodulation for Alzheimer's, and since Alzheimer's is going to be the huge epidemic, and it's going to decimate healthcare costs and all this, and um, the fact that most drug trials for Alzheimer's have failed dismally, right? I mean, the cost of billions of dollars and like a few folks with small trials for Alzheimer's get results so good that nobody can believe them. You know, these are people, old folks who can never set a coherent sentence in weeks and months suddenly kind of start talking with their relatives, and people who had to be fed suddenly start using a knife and fork. I mean, a lot of people just can't believe it. And, you know, we do have some statistics that only Relatively small series of patients, but we do have statistical significance. And in my opinion, the effects are so surprisingly good that this has to spread. I mean, it really has to spread. People have to do big trials. And I would expect in five or 10 years that. So the biomodulation for Alzheimer's has to be
0: pretty much out there. (laughs) I think it's an emerging uh therapeutic avenue and i'm really excited about the introduction of this because of the cost and the safety but but some of these devices uh, you know they're not, 000, not a hundred thousand dollars not they're not even ten oh, thousand dollars
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: But, but to make it more affordable for virtually everyone uh i'm wondering if you could comment on the use of a handheld infrared heat massager like a 10 watt infrared heat lamp that You know, it's relatively small power, and it could easily be applied over the scalp and the and the head, and 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 I wonder what your thoughts are on that for being able to provide the effective stimulation to the critical areas in the brain.
1: Well, I I get a lot of emails from folks asking me what device they can buy to use at home because uh, yeah, a lot of these folks do not have a lot of money, so Mm -hmm. I tell them to look for. Near infrared security floodlights. So these are 850 nanometers and they're sold so that various companies can have an invisible security light with an infrared camera so intruders can't see they're being filmed. And these are powerful. So you can get 70 or 100 watts of optical power. A thousand dollars, a few hundred dollars sometimes, and if this was a laser, it would cost you a hundred thousand dollars. But these LEDs that are produced in the Far East and made into these flood lamps, each single diode is three watts, right? So that is a, a chunky diode.
0: It is. Yes, yes it is. So it's a, it's a heck of them, a lot of them. And I'm wondering if we could go back and really address the Goldilocks dose because you mentioned that there's a, there's a, there's a fairly significant band of therapeutic efficacy, but at some point it becomes actually uh, counterproductive and actually causes yeah. more hunger than good. So what, what do you think the window is with respect to the number of watts of these LEDs that you'd be putting on your scalp?
1: Right. I mean, again, this is a good question that is it the total amount of energy you're putting in your body? Because these arrays and, for instance, the whole body light bed is a huge area, right? The power mm-hmm. density is modest, it's the same as anybody would use 10 or 20 milliwatts per square centimeter. There
0: oh, is that is the power density on that bed, okay.
1: Yeah, but it's a big area. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, on, on the LED array, it's 10 or 20. So a lot of these devices have the same power density but if they're because they're big and there's a lot of diodes. You put more energy into the body now. What we don't really know is: can you overdose the body on total joules, or is it in, when it's only when it's concentrated? That's what we don't know. Um, my gut feeling is that you know people are not going to stay under these things forever. Like so, ten minutes or half an hour, there's mm-hmm. no harm at all. Okay. You know, maybe if you went to sleep all night, <laughs> you would overdose yourself. It wouldn't surprise me, but mostly I, I tell people they can use these things for 10 or 20 minutes a day and it'll have major benefits and they're extremely likely to have any ill effects.
0: And let me also just comment that the security lamp uh, ball, uh, devices that you recommended. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, there, because they're at 850 nanometers, they that's that's not a lot of heat. Whereas a heat lamp would be actually, if you had the equivalent 100 watt heat lamp, I mean, you could burn yourself. But the, yeah. you're not going to burn yourself with this. No, it, no, it's, it's...
1: Virtually no heat at all. Like, yeah. You can feel a little warmth, but it's like no
0: heat. Now. Yeah. So that's a that's a great strategy. And actually, it just occurred to me that because uh, I was this may be more effective to uh, set because a number of people have infrared saunas um that's been the, a popular choice for them. and I think and I'm a strong advocate of those and there's many benefits as long as they are very low emf because you can have very dangerous ems from some of these ceramic panels and uh but I think if you have one of those low emf far infrared it would seem that you could put some of these security lamp devices in there and you, essentially you would have a com- it really it, it really isn't full spectrum but it's, it's it's i guess biologically full spectrum because you're getting the yep. near infrared and then you get then certainly all the far infrared
1: yeah, i've heard that people are getting saunas that have both near infrared and far infrared try and get but, the but,
0: best of both but levels. i think that, that that's being done with heat lamps you know which is good because you want to get it hot anyway but 80 90% of that heat lamp is is, is still far infrared it's not the near yeah no absolutely but so, you know, it, it seems it would be a lot more effective dose if you use these security camera. Uh, yeah. Security. What what? They're security <laughs> camera lights. That's what <laughs> they're called.
1: Yeah, floodlight. Or, I guess. It's near, I think they call them like near infrared floodlights.
0: Okay, yeah. so that's a that's a great strategy. And so, to the best of your knowledge, no one's really doing experiments with these.
1: No, I don't think so, no. no, no.
0: But, but the science suggests it would work. The science has been done.
1: Yeah, and also, you know, several folks have got them because I recommended them, and the feedback I get is they work just great. Wow. You and say, they're,
0: they're, work, they're, work great for what?
1: Well, you know, a lot of people have problems with the brain, but other people have, like, orthopedic problems, musculoskeletal problems, um, you know, where... Typically, near infrared photobiomodulation works great. The question just is what's the best way to to deliver it to the body?
0: Yes, indeed. Um,
1: You know, I think that for a lot of applications that are going to be great, nobody's really studied them much. And I'll give you one example, which is kidney failure, right? Mm -hmm. So, kidney failure is the third leading cause of death. And these are old folks who are dying from kidney failure. You can't really give them transplants because they're elderly. And you know, you put a near-infrared LED array around the, the, where their kidneys are, and this seems to work like a dream. But- I <laughs> studied at all.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! Before I went to medical school, I actually harvested kidneys for transplants for patients. Okay. And, you know, so I have some experience in that area. But you know, even in an ideal circumstance, you have to be. It's not your own tissue, so you have to be placed on these very dangerous and necessary immunosuppressive drugs, which will literally destroy. To seek to destroy your immune system, or certainly suppress it, and, and have their own complications. So, boy, <laughs> and the cost with that. I mean, it's it's most of those, almost everyone is. It's, I believe there's a. It's an aspect of Medicare or Medicaid program. I think it's Medicare, end stage renal disease program where it's covered by the government. So uh, you know they don't have to worry about paying for it. But geez. I mean, it is expensive, and you know we're spending $3 trillion a year every year, so it would be a far less expensive and safer long-term option to use some infrared therapy.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. Any, any other exciting applications that you've seen it used for? I well, wasn't I aware think, of the kidney one.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and again, Where do you put the light? I think most Uh, people end up putting it on the belly, right? Because you know, light has effects on fats and it can melt it away a little bit, but it's anti inflammatory. And and a lot of these problems are caused by having excess inflammation in your sort of belly fat, It's Mm. like a big sort of reservoir of all these inflammatory cytokines. So, I think.
0: does the near could you explain the impact of near infrared on the inflammatory process and the well, cytokines?
1: It's highly anti-inflammatory. It it seems to change the macrophage phenotype from M1, which is pro-inflammatory and you know, interleukin one, TNF alpha, IL6, to M2 phenotype, which is I L4, IL10, TGF beta. And the interesting thing is that M2 macrophages are really good at phagocytosis, right? So they gobble up the garbage. So in your brain when you've got amyloid plaques or tau tangles or alpha-synuclein sort of aggregates Reducing the inflammation is key, but also encouraging the microglia to be good garbage removal agents, in in my opinion, is hugely important. But nevertheless, for many systemic inflammatory disorders such as type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome and all these things, changing the inflammatory profile from pro-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory has a huge big deal.
0: So, do, do you think there sounds like there would be some benefit uh, to expose yourself on a regular basis? This I've seen some devices that are almost the size of a conventional door that are, have about three hundred watts of LEDs okay. that you can you can essentially expose your whole body to it. And w- in, in, in an array like that, what would be your estimate for an optimal dosing strategy? Like ten minutes on each side of your body?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's simple to do you could you could actually and is there at, at at 600 and 850 is there any danger to looking at that light when you're standing in front of the bed from your perspective it's probably healthy and beneficial i would think
1: so red light can you and especially you know 630 if you look at a 630 nanometer array you get Dazzle, but it's not harmful for the eyes. You know, it takes you a while to recover. Near infrared is actually very good for your eyes. Um, you know, things like 830 or 850. You know, as I get older, I know, think my eyesight's not as good as it was. <laughs> I quite often stick some 850 nanometer light in my eyes. Uh, yeah. Sometimes. I'd... Well,
0: well let, let's talk about that for a minute because we do have an epidemic, not only of Alzheimer's but of age-related macular degeneration, yeah. and it's my contention and belief that that's largely related to the exposure of these uh, tr- tremendous amounts of uh, LED light sources on our computer monitors and our phones and our. Our lights in our home and offices, so uh, paying careful attention to that. Oh, and at night, if you're traveling at night, I mean, if you're traveling down the road, every one of those flashlights, or those headlights, almost everyone. I I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some antique autos that have incandescents, but almost every, all the new cars have LED lamps. So you're staring into headlights of LED, which is blue light at night when you don't need it at all. Yeah,
1: I mean, so, I, I, I suppose you know, headlights driving at night is is not good for. Yeah, I, I I think the contribution to age-related macular degeneration of ambient light is is probably minimal. Actually. I mean, I think it's much more interesting. Unhealthy lifestyle, no antioxidants, <clears throat> too much fat, too much stress, not enough exercise, chronic systemic inflammation—all the things that. Are causing most of the diseases of the Western world. But, you know, I mean, there are papers that show that blue light can damage the retina.
0: yeah, they're they're pretty clear. I mean, I've i read a number of studies that support that. So if you if especially if it's not balanced with the infrared. So I, that's yeah. why when I drive at night, I always have my yellow sunglasses in the car. So I put okay. my sunglasses on at night to see sunset. I put them on so all the all the headlamps look yellow. Oh, <laughs> Which,
1: well, pro- probably a good idea. Yeah.
0: And I and let me just share my personal experience. And even though it's anecdotal and certainly doesn't prove a darn thing at all, but I've noticed an improvement in my visual acuity. And I typically yeah. run my all my monitors, it's very rare where I put over 2,000, where unless I have to see something. And typically, especially in the early morning, it's at 1,200K, which oh. is pretty much orange. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, it's, it, it's pretty interesting. And so I think that. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, it doesn't matter what I think, you're the expert. I'm wondering what your perspective. You're the expert in the photobiomodulation. It seems from my perspective that if you can avoid this blue light at the wrong times and you can nourish your eye with this healing near-infrared frequencies yeah. that you could actually reverse this macular degeneration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what's, your, what's your impression?
1: No, I mean there's, there's a uh, a startup company called Lumithera, which Clark Tedford started up, which is treating age-related macular degeneration with photobiomodulation. So as a, a specific device, a bit like a slit lamp, and you put your put your eyes in the right sort of slots, and this machine. Shines light into your eyes, red and near infrared, and principally, and he's done clinical trials, and, and, and I don't know whether they're published yet. But you know, the yeah. odds are that it's highly effective, and he will eventually get FDA approval, and he'll be able to market this device to ophthalmologists. So that's his business plan: is 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 you know, a clinical device for ophthalmologists, and
0: yeah, you know, and it's, the, and, it's, and that's great, but you've you've shared with us that the Biohack workaround that you don't have to wait for the FDA and you can yeah. buy it today on Amazon with your uh, eight hundred fifty uh, security yeah. camera infrared light, and you can use it today. And there's essentially yeah. reaffirmed that there's no danger at these frequencies yeah. no, or this, uh, at this absolutely. energy yeah. intensity around. That. Absolutely,
1: yeah. So we're, we're, in the future, we envisage some devices which will get FDA clearance for efficacy and will be clinically used in hospitals and ophthalmologists, even psychiatrists and all medical professionals. And then there will be a whole army of other devices that people have at home. I, I can see the day when every household will have one or two light therapy devices.
0: Absolutely. Now, I would like you to comment now on the frequency, because most of the devices we're referencing are continuous. They're, 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 there's no frequency. There's just a steady stream of yep. photons coming out. So you can modulate it with frequencies. And it's my understanding that the ideal is probably are between 10 and 40 hertz, and anything over 100 hertz probably doesn't have any biological effect, or maybe a negative biological impact. So I am wondering if you can talk about how important it would be, the frequencies, and maybe – uh, even optimizing that security light by making it pulse at 10, yeah. 20, 30 hertz.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, by and large, I, I agree with you that if it turns out that pulsing is better than CW, and there is quite a bit of evidence it probably is better, maybe not a huge amount better, but definitely better, then the optimum frequency is somewhere between 10, 20, 30, 40 hertz. So there was a study from MIT that got a lot of publicity recently when mm-hmm. they used 40 hertz light flashing into the eyes to treat Alzheimer's and mice. You know, everybody got sort of read this on the internet, and they said this 40 hertz was like a magic frequency, right?
0: The, and that's the gamma yeah. frequency in the brain, right?
1: I believe so, yeah. Um, We we did a study that found 10 hertz was better than CW and better than 100 hertz. Mm -hmm. If if pulsing is better, it's likely to be in that range, and I completely agree that cells cannot respond to kilohertz. It's just way too fast for cells to even take any notice of.
0: Well, great. So uh, are there any other... Uh, developments on the horizon that uh, we're unaware of that uh, you have insights to because you're networked in that community.
1: So, as I say, in, in Rio de Janeiro and the Olympics, there were a lot of light therapy devices, but, you know, the the competitors weren't bragging about them too much because, you know, in sports, it's a hugely sensitive thing to perform, have performance enhancement because, you know, all these drugs and supplements and things can be illegal, but, You know, there is no conceivable sort of forensic test for having exposed (laughs) yourself to light,
0: right? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in the future, but not occurring in the state of technology. That's for darn (laughs) sure. You
1: know, so athletes get huge benefits from putting red, near-infrared light on their muscles. A lot of them use LED arrays. Some use whole. Whole body
0: light beds. Um, it's a huge, and, and, big deal. And what would what would the intention be for the muscles that they've just exercised, or that they're, they're using most most actively? Uh, it's not going to imp- improve endurance. It would just be muscle uh, uh, recovery, I would imagine, right?
1: Well, I mean, endurance to some degree. I mean, the time to exhaustion is extended with light therapy. So there's basically two ways athletes use. this. one is preconditioning before your sports event mm. um, then there's after which is helps recovery and delayed onset muscle soreness and all these things but you know, if you combine light therapy with a training regimen so each day you do your training you get the light and you go on like that you can train a lot more effectively um, I think this is to really spread.
0: <laughs> well, it's exciting. As I said at the beginning of our interview, I, I'm really enamored with it because it's so inexpensive and so safe and so natural. I mean, LEDs oh. aren't typically natural, but they're they're replicating a natural source, which is which is our the sunlight exposure which we've yep. had since we've ever since mm-hmm. our ancestors first existed, whenever that was. So uh, it seems optimizing that exposure. Uh, would be, would be a simple strategy that can, you know, improve your biology with relatively no little to no risk.
1: No, uh-huh. well, quite agree. <laughs> yeah.
0: so it's great, and I, I am just uh, so delighted that there are committed individuals like you. Who've li- literally spent decades in the lab trying to figure this thing out and, and help us understand how we could practically use this. One one of the. Uh, uh, intentions of my first starting this site was to radically decrease the time at which researchers like yourself who committed de- decades of their life's work to uh, developing these principles is to, to decrease the time at which is clinically applied because normally in the past as you know when you first started out it could be uh, half a century before these, this, this knowledge became common so now yeah. we, now we can decrease that time so thank yeah. you so well, much
1: yeah, we're just coming up pretty much to the 50th anniversary. So, uh, you know, Andre Mester was the first one to start treating um, non healing wounds in uh, 1967.
0: So, exactly. And he did, he did that with lasers, didn't he? He
1: did it, did, it, yeah, did it with the ruby laser and then a Hemi laser. And for, for 20 years, everybody used lasers. But, but now LEDs are rapidly taking over.
0: Yeah, well, but as we mentioned earlier, photobiomodulation has been around for centuries. And we yeah. t- in, in the most recent times, you know, Kellogg in 1910 and yeah. Finson with yeah. the Nobel Prize. So yeah. in 1902, 1906, somewhere around there. Uh, so, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And it's yeah. just that there's this emphasis and encouragement in the me- conventional medical model to rely on expensive and dangerous medications. Because they can and they're encouraged to do that rather than these simple strategies.
1: Yeah. And, you know, something like psychiatric drugs are just horrendous. They Uh, they have virtually no positive benefits, they have huge numbers of side effects. Um, You know, I'm just putting simple light on your head (laughs) works a damn sight better than these drugs.
0: yes indeed all right well this is uh, is there any, any other insights you'd like to share with us before we let you go
1: I think I've covered quite a lot of stuff I mean
0: yeah we, we extracted it out of you and I really appreciate that because you've provided the parameters and the guidelines that we could safely and successfully integrate this into our life in our lifestyle and at a relatively low cost so Thank you so much for all your work and for sharing it with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank, thank you for giving me the chance to raffle on. You know, as you can tell, I like talking about this stuff.
0: Yeah, well, you should. You've committed your whole life, professional <laughs> life to it. So that's, it's great to be able to share it.